Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Injernil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. George, welcome to the show. It's terrific to have you. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited about our conversation. Well, I'm excited on a number of fronts, actually. I've um, uh, been looking forward to this episode a great deal. It's the first uh, company we're talking to that's in the area of mental health, which is of such great importance these days. It's also um, a first company that's gone through an, a successful IPO and is, is growing exponentially on the back end of that. So a couple of landmarks uh, for us on this show. Um, but most of all, I'm actually... Um, thrilled to have you because you have such an interesting background and uh, it's such an interesting story about how um, someone like yourself comes to uh, the, the field of impact business, in, impact entrepreneurship. And I'm sure there's a lot that people can learn from, uh, from your personal journey. So if we could start there, can you give us a little bit of background on George Goldsmith and how he came to Compass Pathways to create Compass Pathways? And what were some of the things that you've done throughout your life which echo now in this company and, and bring about its success? Well, I think that um, for me, what was is interesting is I started my life being adopted. And I think that that's always an interesting place because you're part of a family, but you're not exactly part of a family. So this being part in, part out, being an observer, being a participant, I think is an interesting place. As I've talked to other adults who've been adopted, they also have that sort of similar thing. So that may be something that would be hard for others to emulate if it didn't happen, but it, it is a uh, an interesting starting point, actually. And I was always a curious kid, um, really interested more in science. I was I went to a very competitive all boys school, very focused on sports. That wasn't who I was. So I needed to develop my own spike and tended to become really curious reading, got interested in science. And I think my first entrepreneurial moment was when I was 13 and went to IBM because I wanted to start a computer uh, club in my school at 13. Um, and this was in 1968. Um, I went to IBM and said, could I have two computer terminals, one for my school and one for my house? Um, and I remember them looking at me quizzically, but I had probably one of the first entrepreneurial dimensions emerge, which is resistance is futile. So if you want something, you want to make something happen, it's really good to be persistent um, with some EQ and you know, emotional intelligence. Uh, but I think it's, it's really um, a key element. And lo and behold, a couple of months later, I was so proud of my, I think it was 120 baud modem and paper tape in my bedroom connected to an IBM mainframe uh, and another in my school. So that really started for me um, an opportunity to realize that if I wanted something, I could actually make it happen uh, with enough persuasion and enough background. And I think that's such a an important part of entrepreneurs. Um, I could also never quite figure out what to focus in on. I was really curious about computer science and very involved in that on the one hand, but also how the mind worked uh, from the earliest days. Um, and remember, this was in the late 60s, early 70s. 
there were also psychedelic drugs at that time. So I was really curious about that whole area. And um, so these are the seeds that were placed uh, long in my past around a compass. Ironically, I was reading some of the work of people who were now working with in their 80s, who were back in the prime in their 50 in the 50s and 60s writing about this area of psychedelics and mental health. So it's just interesting to see how these threads emerge. Um, But early stage persistence, don't take no for an answer and look at where you can have a real impact in things. So my journey is always this interesting blend of things that may not seem to fit together, computer science, clinical psychology. Um, And I think those tensions are also really important in any entrepreneurial journey. maybe a little tongue in cheek, but I think one of the things that I feel about being an entrepreneur is fundamentally we're impatient, um, which leads to a sense of restlessness and occasionally just kind of plain unemployable, right? Because we have a view of what we want and what we want to achieve. And, And so there's a whole class of entrepreneur that just, you know, doesn't fit terribly well. And so we have to create something that we fit into. Uh, and I think that's certainly part of my story. Well, some fascinating uh, reflections there, George. I think the one about, you know, um, being comfortable about not fitting, but then actually creating your own environment where you do fit, which usually involves uh, blending together cross-disciplinary areas of of knowledge, um, which also involves, you know, a great deal of creativity. And ultimately in a business involves making a new market, you know, persuading the customers, persuading the regulators, persuading everyone that this is of great value and then following through to, to deliver that. Um, now, that must take an enormous amount of, um, you know, conviction, self-confidence. Um, did you find that uh, this came naturally to you or, or how, how did that, uh, that confidence in your ability to take these audacious steps come about? Um. I had probably over the course of my life, four or five people, and we all have this in our lives, um, who really did believe, really, you know, were supportive at different points in my life who made it possible. Um, You know, and I think that these were, you could think of them as mentors, uh, some were investors, um, but people who really saw that particular to your point, joining of different forces in perhaps unexpected ways that was simply interesting to them. And they enabled me to have access to the resources or whether those were, you know, early clients as I was looking at how do we create a more healthy workplace around technology implementation in the 80s with my first company, Human Interface Group, which was a group of psychologists working with technologists who are changing people's jobs, but not really realizing or paying attention to that with the introduction of technology. We were the psychologists that helped build the learning environments to have people be able to participate in those new technology-driven landscapes. The one I started with was helping designers move to CAD. And how do we, you know, from drawing with pencil and and all of these tools in the physical world, moving that into the the world of um, engineering and engineering drawings using computers, and then how to move them into three dimensions. And so what became really interesting for me was just seeing 
opportunities that were created by a convergence of technology and and that happened in my earliest days. And I think this is what I always look for is opportunities for convergence of things that actually create a, dis, a discontinuity in some way. And in discontinuity, there's always opportunity for some. Obviously, there's also harm for others. And figuring out how to navigate that, I think, is really important as an entrepreneur, because that's where the future lives, um, the visible future lives. And mm-hmm. so really looking for those things. And um, I think I'm just wired to be curious, right? And those are the things that I'm curious about. I think it's a, a great blessing to find this broader community of visionaries and believers who don't always even with the entrepreneur understand exactly what the end product is going to be and they're more believing in the direction of travel and yet willing to support people who are you know starting out on that journey towards a better place particularly in impact businesses i think that uh, that's uh, that's so critical uh, do you find that um there's been a, a an expansion in that community of people who are believers in the the impact business paradigm that are willing to back people like yourself and where are they to be found? It's a really interesting question. The first question that pops to my mind is what do we mean by impact? Because in many ways, every opportunity to make a difference that matters in this world is an impact opportunity. The question, I guess, is how do you define and so we can continue this conversation because having an impact is kind of required for future momentum after the initial idea. It's it's really impact is the wellspring of growth. Uh, If you don't have it, then it's an issue. So I think we're talking in this conversation (coughs) perhaps about a little narrower view of impact than just making a difference in someone's business life or others. So it might be helpful to say, excuse me, uh, what, how you're defining impact so we can be on the same page now uh, in this as we move forward. Well, that's a great question. And I think um, with your um, psychology background, um, I don't want to, um, you know, speak, uh, you know, incorrectly, but one way that I think about it is Maslow's pyramid. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the ultimate form of impact is to empower and emancipate people to be able to spend more time in the higher parts of Maslow's pyramid of self-realization, which means that you have to be able to do or provide the basics lower down in terms of food and security in an extremely efficient clean and sustainable way. So, you know, that's one way that I think about it is how do we create a world where we're able to um, empower and release the full human potential of the seven, soon to be 10 billion people, you know, on earth so that their collective creativity and potential is, is fully harnessed. Because when you do that and you do it in a way in which is sustainable, I think you really bring the best of humanity to the fore. And a lot of the challenges that we face get solved because in some ways human potential is really unlimited. But in order to do that, you have to solve uh, you know, the basic provision of food, water, transportation, infrastructure, all of these you know, very hard and fast uh, economical 
uh, activities in a much more efficient and sustainable way. It's a really interesting thing, so that you've raised because I think it it's an interesting way to look a bit at my journey. Um, so you know, I've my journey was really being curious about. I was a psychologist who decided, or a person trained as a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, the last step was to go actually become a therapist and to actually uh, go to an internship and so forth. And what I realized right before that is I didn't want to work one person at a time because I wanted to have greater impact. And so that led me to look at, well, where do people get affected in a way that brings them to psychologists' offices. And that led me to look at the world of work and changes that were going on in the world of work and looking at how to have a positive impact there. And, and that really led me to what I just described before. Um, that then introduced me to another area that I became fascinated with, which was back in the 80s, what happens when teams are building huge projects, the ones I was involved in were nuclear power plants being built on one side of the earth and being designed on the other. And how do those teams coordinate when it was just a kind of a, um, uh, a huge number of faxes, people buried in paperwork. And that led me to create uh, my first organization looking at group technology which, uh, before the internet, actually, or just at the very early dawns of this and how we get people to coordinate action across time and distance. And that, again, removed friction. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is the removal of friction uh, so that people can operate at a higher level rather than to be trapped in, in lower level processes. Um, and so I think this has actually been interesting because it has been a theme of what I've been interested in when I created another organization called Tomorrow Lab, which uh, then became Tomorrow Lab at McKinsey. I know our shared heritage there. Um, it was really looking at how do organizations collaborate over the internet to create new value proposition. Again, a lowering of friction. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this was a really exciting uh, opportunity to design the future. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things for impact for all of us is the importance of time travel and um, how we think about time travel in our work. And time travel is something that we can do by getting on an airplane. Um, so one of the things I was really interested in, in the late 90s was what was happening with the mobile phone revolution in Japan, um, where people were identifying these in a way and using these in a way that simply wasn't present anywhere else in the globe. It was a way to travel to the future. And, mm -hmm. and so I think for impact investors, we can travel to the past, we can travel to the future and really look at where is that emerging pattern that might be a real source of growth, a source of impact in the future? Um, you know, and how do we, we think about that? So I think everything I've done has always been interested in this reduction of friction, mm. questioning current models, and wondering where there was an opportunity to improve the quality of life for people, whether that's work life or you know, work I've done with PEPFAR and uh, UNAIDS and so forth, looking at how do we get countries more engaged in the health systems of their people rather than to just be reliant on donors. So I think any place we see opportunities like this is, is really good. I'm realizing I'm talking too much, so I'll pause. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is uh, this is really the heart of it. And you asked exactly the right question. What, what is impact? And another way that I think about it is, um, that um, we've created a, an economic society where we tend to deplete natural capital, the stock of natural capital. Um, 
maybe underutilized and certainly not invest in building up the stock of human capital, right? All for the purpose of uh, creating financial capital as a sole metric, if you like, of, of material progress. I think part of this impact paradigm shift is refocusing on actually investing in building up human capital, part of which is really reducing these frictions so that humans can interact with each other, network, collectivize their know-how and their energy to create um, solutions for all the things you know, that, that we face around us. And to, again, build, rebuild up the, um, the stock of natural capital and stop depleting it at such a ferocious rate. So when we think of impact businesses, I think it's businesses that are able to, you know, look at the different stocks of capital uh, in, in a broader, broader setting and, mm -hmm. you know, preserve the natural, maybe even build it back up, increase the stock of human capital, um, which by doing that and being smarter about it actually ends up generating more financial capital. So the notion of this trade-off that impact and financial um, um, you know, return are, are at odds is just left at the doorstep. It's actually impact can multiply that um, financial return. I think you're, you're so correct in that. And it's important to keep your eye on the ball, which isn't about the financial. Obviously, that has to be done well, but that in many ways follows the impact from the core purpose. If you're enjoying this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to visit us on the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes and leave a rating and review. Your feedback is essential to help us bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the show. The video version of the show can be found on YouTube by searching under Impact Unicorns. Please like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows. I think one of the things that is, there's been a theme continuously around the power and importance of collaboration, working across boundaries. Um, and whether that was in supporting teams using new technologies, I think what became really interesting in that is seeing the importance of how regulation can help provide guardrails to make sure that, as you said earlier, financial interests don't trump other interests, other societal, other stakeholder concerns. And one of the things that I started becoming very interested in was the pharmaceutical industry and how do we bring medicines to patients at the right time with the right medicine, the right patient at a cost society could afford. And that was really the tricky bit. And so that led me to start getting very interested in bringing together leaders of the pharmaceutical industry with payers and governments um, to really look at how do we solve this problem? Because clearly, if we looked around and we saw it, it was going, it wasn't going well. And so I spent a lot of time in that area with my organization, Tapestry Networks, working with some of the largest pharmaceutical companies, but also working with governments and looking at how do we solve this problem. Historically, they sit across the table and they negotiate with each other. 
What we did is what if we took a slightly different approach and sat at the, on the same side of the table and look at the nature of the problem together and then figure out our roles in creating and helping solve that problem. And that, I think that mindset shift really enabled us to take a look at why were some medicines just not making it to patients. And one of the things we discovered was that actually um, the companies and the governments and the public health systems really weren't spending enough time together early on to look at what was the need and how do the studies, the research and the approach actually address that need um, and to really make sure that that happened. Um, and the way to do that was to involve all the stakeholders, patients, governments, health systems, payers, regulators, the companies before they designed the clinical trials, not afterwards. And, and that was quite a revolutionary thing. It sends a blinding flash of the obvious, but it actually enabled people to reduce costs in clinical trials, be clearer on what they were looking for, include important financial metrics in terms of how do patients benefit, how do health systems benefit from these new innovations. And busy working on that at uh, Tapestry and got married in 2009 and uh, amazing uh, woman named uh, Dr. Uh, Ekaterina Malevskaya, who is my wife now. And she was a doctor. And she also had a very, very talented son. He was 16 at the time. He went off to university. And like far too many of our children, just became depressed, anxious, OCD. And it became quite severe. And I think this is what really pivoted. This was the basis of looking at, at the evolution of compass and mental health. The more we discovered how so many people, despite all the treatments, just weren't being helped. Certainly our personal situation, but as we talked to others, it became very clear it was their situation. And we started looking for innovation in a very personal sense, but also a broader sense. How could we perhaps look at some new tools that really could be an opportunity. And um, Compass was basically, Katya was trying to figure out how to help her son reading medical journals during her sleepless nights. And she discovered an article about psilocybin, which is the active ingredient or an active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms. She woke me up the next day and said, hey, you were in the 60s and 70s. What do you know about this stuff? And as I mentioned, I was quite intrigued by it in my teen years. I'd forgotten about it for 30 some years. Um, but that started us looking at, could this be an innovation? The research was really interesting. The signals were interesting. A single dose of this medicine under carefully controlled circumstances seemed to have enduring benefit for people. And, and we just started to get more and more intrigued and this was a fascinating area to look at impact, to look at back to what we talked about as these themes of thinking laterally, bringing different constituencies together. And for us, this was the wellspring for this current work that we're doing at Compet. I think the two things you touched on there are so interesting. One is the, the, the building of partnerships between um, different stakeholders, the public, you know, patients, um, drug companies, um, regulators. Um, and this seems to be an absolute requirement for new paradigms um, to solve societal problems through business. 
Well, it's you raised two fascinating points there, George. One, one is this need to bring together different stakeholders in society, the patients, the regulator, um, drug companies, investors, to solve a societal problem first um, and des design something that's actually going to have that impact. Um, and then, you know, I think um, often I find that with uh, impact businesses, it's also um, um, a labor of love. There's, there's passion involved. There's a personal investment. And that was certainly the case in, in the formation of Compass, it seems. Um, can you walk us through how, with the company, you also went through that transition of changing perception? Because obviously, you know, the word magic mushroom and psychedelics conjures up a certain set of perceptions among people. But how have you been able to reframe that into uh, a treatment, a potential treatment for mental health? I think one of the things I'll just share with you is important linguistic distinction is we don't see it as a treatment. We see it as a model of care. And mm -hmm. this is really important because I think treatment implies there's a treater and there's a recipient and a power differential, as mm -hmm. opposed to we all struggle in our lives. That's part of the human experience. And we're not developing a cure for that. What we're doing is to make sure that people don't get trapped in their suffering unnecessarily. And that can happen so deeply and profoundly with depression, anxiety. Most of us have seen that, whether in our own lives or in our family members or friends somewhere. You know, everyone does have a story about that. So I think that the reason I, I mention this is that part of developing impact is we're all in this together, no matter whether it's, you know, how do we get HIV medicines without compromising access to tuberculosis medicines and diarrhea medicines? It's all about how do we think holistically? How do we think together? And how do we eliminate the sort of us, them, I'm more powerful, I'm the treater, you're the recipient. I think we have to really take a view that is more about we're all in this human experience together. Let's work on this particular issue. Let's co-orient to the problem. Let's sit on the same side of the table. Let's look at it together. Yes, we have different roles, different responsibilities, different capabilities, but we are smarter than me every time. And therefore, what we need to do is to develop this mindset of looking at the shared challenge and figuring out which bits we can work on together productively and what we can bring, what others can bring, and how those fit together. And I'm sorry I went kind of into that, but I think it's an important orientation to bring to any work that you do at scale, particularly bringing stakeholders together to work on it. Well, thank you for pointing that out. I, I do like that um, uh, distinction between treatment and care. Uh, that's, a, that's really important in, in, in mental health in particular. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the areas, the segments of mental health that you think this uh, can you care paradigm is best able to target? I think what's really interesting about, you know, if, uh, Katya, my wife and co-founder and head of innovation uh, at Compass would, were sitting next to me, you know, she would say that we actually don't know a lot about mental health. We know we've defined and described mental illness in almost 600 different ways, looking at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that drives psychiatry diagnoses. 
but we don't have anything that really looks at mental health and mental health is not the absence of mental illness. So there is a huge opportunity we have when we look at mental health broadly. We're focused initially on the people kind of more in the mental illness area, but there's nothing that says we have to stop when someone is not, not suffering ill health, but maybe they could become more, they could thrive, they can flourish. When do you stop providing support for people? It's an interesting question back to your Maslow uh, point earlier on. So we're a mental health care company looking at how we can care for mental health. And we're starting with the people who are suffering most. And those people typically we're looking at people with depression, with anxiety, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, um, addictions. These are all quite often linked by some common underlying processes that manifest differently at different times in people's lives. Scientists and researchers point to something called negative attentional bias, that over time we learn, some of us learn that we may not, our expectations may not be met. And that leads us to expect that they won't be met in the future. They haven't been met in the past. And we kind of have this glass half empty view of the world. Others don't have that. Some people, whether it's genetic or familial, who knows, or environmental. But one of the things that characterizes the things that we're looking at is people who tend to have a negative attentional bias. The other thing that characterizes a lot of so-called mental illness is people who become very inwardly focused, inwardly focused on what's going on. You know, why don't I quite fit in that? Why, you know, why did that happen? So a lot of energy kind of on a very rich inner landscape of experience. And, and that becomes more and more compelling, more and more focused. Our inner planning voice that we all have starts, you know, being almost a critic for us. And this kind of rigid, rigid rumination coupled with negative attentional bias seems really to be the wellspring for a lot of mental ill health. And it starts creating a narrative, a way of seeing almost a script that we can then perceive things with. And I think, you know, what's critically important about how we operate as, as organisms in the world is that we can't pay attention to every single pixel that comes into it. We just don't have enough processing power. So we always kind of have part of our attention focused on novel things and part of it predicting what will be next, right? So once I've seen your face as I have, and you know, what I see is I know that that's you and I don't have to put a lot of attention on figuring out if that's you every second. So then I can pay attention to things that might be what you're asking. Right. And so I don't have to allocate my limited attention to everything I can focus. Well, people who have these kinds of disorders tend to have more of their bandwidth talk about their internal processes and rather than being present. So often what you see is people with depression often talk about being disconnected from mm -hmm. social environment, et cetera, because they have this rich inner dialogue, this narrative that's going on and on and on. And, and that becomes less interesting for people to engage with them, right? Because they're always focused on themselves and then you get isolation. So for us, what we're looking at, because we know that psilocybin does tend to have an effect on the negative attentional bias and on the rumination processes. The, their wellspring, that's a wellspring for multiple kinds of quote unquote mental illnesses or mental ill health. 
And so that's how we're thinking about it. And we're doing studies around depression, treatment resistant depression. Now, this isn't depression that resists treatment, right? It's that we don't know what to do with this particular form of, we don't have good tools. So we label it as treatment resistant, but it's simply, we don't have enough innovation. And those are the areas that we're really focused in on. I think it's uh, also interesting that when you look at this in terms of care and not just a treatment, as I understand it, the way you um, you know provide this care to people isn't just through a molecule, but there is a quite a significant amount of counseling that accompanies it. Um, could you explain how that works and and how you know the molecule and you know the the counseling work together to rewire some of this uh, you know in excessive introspection that characterizes mental illnesses? So what has happened in neuroscience over the last probably 15, 20 years, we have a huge uh, burgeoning of innovation, the ability to look at signals, brain scans, deeper EEGs, all sorts of new technologies that enable us to be looking at how different parts of the brain communicate, right? As I mentioned, if we're predicting things, we have to take our perception system and also our history and somehow link them. What's our memory? How do we predict? So all of these systems are highly interconnected. And what sometimes happens is those interconnections become pretty rigid. And what psilocybin does is it almost is like snow on, on a, a day after a ski where you see those deep trails in the, in the snow. You have a beautiful snow overnight. And those trails are those rigid thinking trails are, are removed. And that's the way patients talk about this. It's a very interesting metaphor where they see their lives differently and the kind of rumination tracks that they have don't exist. Now, what does the therapy do? The therapy helps people understand, and it's not really therapy as much as almost psychoeducation, that our lives are stories, that the story is, you know, there are different perceptual inputs and we can describe those in different ways. And so are there healthier ways for us to look at the same fact pattern and have a different outcome up to our life? And a lot of what we're doing is helping people understand through insight, there's a much, many psychotherapies work this way, um, that there's a different way of perceiving the world that may be healthier. And so we help people see that the medicine is a catalyst. So after people have a couple of sessions thinking about that and, and appreciating what a, the psychedelic experience could be, they come into a, a clinic that looks very similar to more like a living room than a, a medical facility. There's a therapist who spent time with them uh, talking about the issues I just described. Um, they then come in, they're given a um, dose of psilocybin. They're invited to take that uh, by the therapist. They lay down on a couch. Um, they are asked to have an inner experience. This is basically a, a way for them to look at their lives enabled by this medicine. Um, they wear eye shades. We have a specially curated soundtrack that basically enables them to just be calm while the work of the medicine is taking place. There's a therapist there. If they become nervous or uncomfortable or need to talk or want to talk about something that's they're experiencing, but largely it's in an inner introspective journey. Um, and at the end of four to six hours, the medicine stops working and patients kind of start seeing the world a lot differently. They Many report how it's just quieter in their heads. 
um, they see things a bit differently than they did before. And then the next day and a couple of other sessions, if they need it, people, which often is provided, people speak, you know, they, they give a chance to see what they've seen and then to start putting in plans of how they address what they've seen. Often people spontaneously make changes to their life. They might, you know, struggle with eating and overeating and self-soothing. And they realize that, you know, who's doing that to whom after all anyway. And, you know, they develop a sense of being able to grab a hold of that spontaneously stopping smoking. I mean, we see various things. This isn't a magic. This isn't a cure. I'm just saying, there are things that people just see differently about their lives and realize they can do something about it. It's empowering. So, so that's how this, this works. It's a preparation of how to see my life as a, as a narrative, how to change that narrative through the support of the session and the medicine and how to maintain that different perspective with support. And then, you know, the question is, you know, how do we provide that through peer support and digital technologies and how do we prevent relapse? You know, because these are rigid patterns have gone for years. So we need to anticipate that. So this is what we're doing. We're really thinking about how do we help people reconnect to their lives in a more positive way. Yeah. And just as the, the, the care paradigm brings together molecule you know, digital technology um, therapy uh, skills, um, that must be also quite challenging to encase in a new business model because there aren't that many you know, treatments I can think of or, or care paradigms that I can think of where you know, it's all combination of all three. It tends to be one, maximum two of those. So how does the design of this business of Compass Pathways uh, work? How, how did you work through some of the challenges that must have been to sort of fit this all together in a business model? Because on the one hand, you have, you know, your drug approval and ultimately, you know, commercialization challenges. You have the need to manage a, a large pool of therapists, presumably, uh, in some, some fashion. And there's the, the, the digital backbone that enables a lot of it. Um, that's quite a lot to take on. How, how does it all click together as a, as a business? Well, first of all, it's important to say that we are a research organization at this point because whilst there's a lot of interesting um, anecdotal reports, there really hasn't ever been, and this is the real distinction between us and kind of others, is there hasn't been access to capital to do the large-scale trials that are actually necessary to demonstrate where we are um, and to actually be able to create a business because you need to have demonstrated and have produced evidence that this can actually make a difference. And that's where we are in our research right now. We're at what's called a phase to be trial that does bring these pieces together, the digital, the therapeutic, and the medicine. Um, and we've done that in 10 countries working with regulators, so European countries, US and Canada. And I think that where we are right now is, is developing that package. Obviously, how we would deliver that is to be providing that package to people who would, in fact, deliver it. We don't want to deliver it. We want to divide, design it and design it in real world settings, but then to make it available for others to deliver. 
Um, so I think that's really important. So our job is really to pull this together, um, to integrate these pieces, to provide the training that others can deliver, to provide the data so we can learn from how this experience works. And that that learning then enhances how we deliver it. And so there's this kind of double loop learning. We learn from the practice of this, and that encourages us to innovate. And the innovation, in fact, helps people learn how to improve the outcomes. So there's this learning model. And so what we'll be doing is developing this package. Obviously, it has medicine. It has digital technology associated with it. And that we'll be providing that to the people who deliver the care. And then we'll also be creating a learning environment based on the data of who improves, who doesn't, so we can personalize. I'll stop by just saying that the real golden, kind of the holy grail here is how do we create precision, predictive, and mental on its early days? Um, but we're getting quite a bit of support for that from countries, from health systems, et cetera, who really do need a new model. Just look around us. One of the things you mentioned was um, that this uh, area of care has never had the financial support, the, the capital to really develop the technology to prove the benefits. But um, you've been able to raise um, a, a large amount of it um, throughout the company's history. Um, tell us a little bit about that uh, process of being able to attract investors uh, to back um, what you're doing in terms of the research and technology development. Well, I think there were amazing early researchers, both, I mean, people don't know this, but in the 50s and 60s, over 40,000 people participated in clinical research, mostly individual case studies of psychedelics. Uh, and then the later part of the 60s happened, unfortunately, around the same time, psychedelics in Vietnam. And so, you know, these substances were basically banned and put away in research stock for the dark ages of almost 30, 40 years. A few researchers started working at this at Hopkins, London Imperial, Zurich, et cetera. And the early research was quite promising, but it was small, right? Small studies, often quite yeah. underfunded. And, you know, we were early, we started early as a donor to some of those studies because we were so interested in it. But there is a point where those early data have to be taken into large studies. And it was so promising. And I think we all know, you know, I mean, this, this isn't a hidden problem, right? It's something we don't talk about, but it isn't hidden. And so I think the combination of a true innovation, an innovation that could really make a difference in people's lives, um, and sadly, a huge market uh, all came together to you know, for some in the early days, very bold investors to come in and and support us. But, you know, now it's uh, shockingly mainstream with a public company on NASDAQ. Um, and you're right, we've raised uh, well over uh, almost a half billion U.S. Tremendous. And so looking forward now, you know, with, with these resources at your disposal, and I know you've built a terrific team. I had the, the, the pleasure to come and speak to, to some of your team uh, earlier in the year. Um, what are the big milestones ahead of you? What, what in the next year would you, you know, looking back a year from now, what would you like to say that you've been able to achieve this, move this uh, company forward significantly? 
We've spent four years um, from the early design to the delivery of this trial with 233 patients. Actually, it was supposed to be 216, but we had more demand and, and people participating. So we have 233 patients. This is the second time that Compass has done the largest study in psychedelic medicine. The first was a healthy volunteer study with 90. This is now a 233-person study in 10 countries. And we're going to see this is for patients suffering with treatment-resistant depression or drug-resistant depression, so-called two to four failures. In other words, they've tried two medicines to four medicines they haven't worked and we're going to be reporting out on that at the end of the year you know what we hope to do is to demonstrate that this can be safe tolerable and effective for a large percentage of patients and that's the biggest milestone in this whole field in history and so i think that that's where all of our attention is at the same time, we realize that treatment-resistant depression, while it affects almost 100 million people on the planet, sadly, um, is not all that we could work on. So we're looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, anorexia. We're working with leading academics to look at other areas that we can bring out the value. And so we have a very broad research program. And I think that you know we'll see fruit from that a year from now. But the really big focus is on this a big study that we're going to be announcing at the end of the year. We finished the last patient was uh, uh, involved in terms of receiving psychedelic or psilocybin therapy on the 8th of July. And we'll be reporting that out for 12 week data toward the end of the year. So that's what we're up to. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, George. And uh, harking back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about unlocking human potential. I think uh, the number of different uh, areas that you describe from treatment resistant mental illness, um, you know, other areas, you know, has the potential to bring so much benefit to human lives and, and really um, allow them to, to fully realize their potential. So I think this is just a, such an exciting um, journey that you're on. And, you know, hopefully we can uh, check in on you from time to time um, and see how how you're getting along, how the technology is developing, and hopefully in the near future, how it's being deployed uh, to those millions of people out there who would benefit from this, uh, this form of care. Thank you. I so appreciate this and look forward to our future conversations. Um, so thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, Don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.